The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. I'm Valdana Hyrick, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, cryptocurrencies have had an awful year. The major coins have all halved in value or worse as the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates and froth leaves the most speculative corners of the market. At the same time, retail investors have bailed and there are no signs that they're making a comeback. We'll get into it with a pro who trades crypto on a daily basis. But first, Mike, I wanted to ask you a question. I'm wondering oh if you have ever been in a book club. As Beavis used to say, Vildana, if I wanted to read, I'd go to school. No, no book clubs for me. No, I, I, I have never been in a book club. Um, I feel like it's a lot of high pressure to actually read the book. You know, if there was like a Cliff, Cliff Notes club, I, I would join maybe. But um, how about you? Have you ever been in a book club? Of course. I'm in multiple book clubs right now. Multiple book clubs. How many book clubs can one woman join? I'm in like two or three, I want to say. They're small sometimes. Like sometimes it's just me and one other person. Part of my reason for never joining is a book club is I've never been invited to, to join a book club. So I'm, I'm not even going to ask you if you'll invite me to one of your multiple book clubs, considering... Yeah, I'm not inviting you. There's no way. There's absolutely no way. There's no room for me. In any of your multiple book clubs, considering I can't even get into your professional network on LinkedIn, I, I assume I'll never get into a Vildana book club. Yeah, no, no LinkedIn invitation for you, no book club for you. And actually, I have a story for you. I met with some students the other day at the journalism school I went to. I was talking to them about Bloomberg and what it's like working there. And afterwards, a bunch of them added me on LinkedIn. And last night I logged in and I accepted all of them. So stu- students get in, mere students, not actual college. Yeah, that's- maybe they'll join my book club too. Yeah, that's not even, that's like LinkedIn fraud. They're not even part of your professional network. You, they are just students. Anyway, well, I've, I've got news for you in that next week we're turning the podcast into our own little book club. So I, you better uh, make some room for your multiple book clubs to read uh, the Paul Volcker memoir. It's a great time to talk about Paul Volcker. Uh, with the inflation flight going on, the former uh, Federal Reserve Chair, our own colleague, Christine Harper, uh, one of my buddies at Bloomberg, actually helped him write the memoirs. So we're going to have her on to discuss uh, his fight against inflation in the 80s and how it relates to today. So like it or not, we're in our own little book club here, Vildana. 
that's actually a very, very good tease and a good segue for the guest that we have on this week. We have Michael Safai. He's the managing partner at Dexterity Capital, which is a crypto proprietary trading firm. He's joining us this week. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to see you both. So, Michael, maybe you can just start with telling us about Dexterity and what it means to be running a proprietary trading firm. Sure. Well, the short short version of Dexterity Capital is we're a proprietary trading firm. We specialize in high-frequency trading of market-neutral algorithmic strategies for cryptocurrency assets. So there's about a team of 17 of us, and together we trade a few billion dollars worth of crypto per day. Um, In 2021, we traded over $1.2 which made us one of the biggest traders of cryptocurrency in the world. So that's the very brief version of what we're doing out there. Uh, Market neutral, an interesting time to be market neutral, Michael, considering I feel like we've been so range bound in crypto uh, at least the last, I don't know, six months or so. What, what, how do you explain this uh, this tight range around 20,000 in Bitcoin and, and sort of every other coin, major coin at least, kind of fa- falling in place and being range bound? What, what, what explains that in your opinion? Well, I mean, there's a few factors. As we all know, with the Fed raising rates, money is tightened up. And with the kind of big controversies we've had in crypto around the Terra crash and around the Celsius collapse, uh, retail has kind of fled the market. So what's happened in recent months is we're seeing a lot more institutional flow than we did over the course of the past five years. Now, institutional players are smart. So when we might have been playing checkers two years ago, we're playing chess now. And when you're playing chess, things tighten up. And these guys are keeping kind of things in the same range while we kind of do price discovery, but still try to make a good profit. Maybe you can just talk a little bit more about the crypto winter. And you just mentioned the Fed, et cetera, and some of the other factors that have been behind the drawdown that we've seen this year. And another thing that's been happening in crypto is that the major cryptocurrencies, at least, have been trading in the same way that U.S. stocks have, and in particular, tech stocks. So can you talk about that and what some of the factors are behind the drawdown? Yeah, and I think, you know, with institutions coming in, they're playing by the rules they've always played by. So, you know, we're crypto native. Dexterity never traded equities. We've always traded crypto. And that's kind of what we were raised on, so to speak, over the course of our five-year history. But as institutions have come in, they're bringing in strategies they adopt in mainstream markets, in equities markets, in FX. So I think part of what we're seeing is that as equities drop, Bitcoin drops, and they kind of stick together. And it's because the same strategies are being enacted by a big players in the institutional world across both asset classes. I'm kind of fascinated with the idea of uh, high frequency trading in crypto, Michael, because, you know, you know, I'm an older gentleman, so shall we say, you know, I remember the old Flash Boys days and the backlash and sort of a lot of the focus of HFT in equities and traditional futures uh, markets uh, was on that idea of latency, you know, if you could co-locate your machine right next to the matching engine at the exchange, you could be the first in and first out of every trade. I don't get the impression that that's at all a factor in crypto uh, at all. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, maybe it is. But, you know, I'm curious what sort of the traditional HFT strategies, what the kind of compare and contrast is between crypto, HFT, and that old school, low latency, you know, venue arbitrage type of uh, HFT that was so famous in the Flashboy days. Yeah, I always feel kind of funny talking about crypto and HFT because the real Flashboy's HFT, you're talking nanoseconds to microseconds latency. And in crypto, 
you don't really get there. You know, the difference is co-location is the exception. Most of the major exchanges in the world are all in AWS. So it's not like I can go buy a machine and put it right next to theirs and try to minimize the length of my cable down to one meter instead of two to be faster. So it's fundamentally different. And there's two types of latency to think about. There's internal and external. So external is that AWS layer. I want to submit an order. I've got to send it through a bunch of machines across the world and try to hit the receiving exchanges exchange as fast as I can. Um, That's something these days that's on the order of milliseconds. And that's true whether you're Citadel or whether you're Dexterity. And it's an interesting problem still to solve. When you talk about all these institutions uh, entering uh, into the market, is, is, is how much uh, of their strategies are, are sort of HFT based as well? Is it is it you know, are we really in a speed battle at this point uh, among the big traders of, of the crypto industry? Not yet, but we're getting there, and we can see it now. And part of it is exchanges themselves maturing. So we talk about latency, but it's also once I've sent a trade to an exchange, how are they going to process it? And is getting there first actually going to matter? Now, in traditional markets, definitely. But with crypto exchanges, there's this thing called jitter, or is it this kind of moment as orders arrive, how fast do they process them? Do they queue them up properly? Do they do them first come, first serve? And in the past, they really didn't. So whether I was 100 milliseconds or 110 milliseconds to get my message out didn't matter much. They're improving, though. And this is going to enable guys like the Citadels and the Jumps of the World to get better. And it also means internal latency matters because you talk about being in the traditional world close to the machine. That's not all that matters. It also matters how fast you process information you receive from an exchange and how fast you make a decision to send a message back out. And while we didn't think about that too much in the past because it just didn't matter, with the big guys in, we have to think about that now. We have to think about our tick to trade or internal latency. So we're at the beginnings of this kind of arms race to be faster, to be smarter, uh, to really win. Yeah. And is there a risk that as more and more sophisticated players like this uh, sort of dominate the volume in crypto, is, is there any worry, any concern that you might scare scare away the retail investors and traders? And, you know, do you really need them in the market to sort of optimize your, your strategies? You know what I mean? Like, do you need that unsophisticated mom and pop trader to, to kind of uh, give you the best opportunities? Yeah, I think, you know, the key about retail traders is they're not price sensitive the way institutions are. So institutions will care about a single bit, a hundredth of a hundredth will care about that, right? But an institution, but a retail trader, they're not bothered if they pay one penny or two pennies on top of $10 to get a trade done. Um, so when retail goes, it ends up being just a bunch of institutional players scrapping over a tiny little sliver. So having retail of the market, it's not great right now. But because crypto is so unique, because there's new products that people don't fully understand, because there's models that haven't been developed for decades, like in TradFi, there's lots of opportunity to kind of find alpha. Michael, can you talk a little bit more about the involvement of the retail investor? Because obviously we had them involved in 2020 and in 2021 when prices were going up and everything was great. And so this year, really, we've had the retail investor retreating. I'm wondering if you think the retail investor will be staging a comeback or if we need the retail investor to really be coming back for prices to start to recover. I think we do need retail to come back. And the truth is, crypto is not just supposed to be another speculative asset. It's supposed to have use cases. It's supposed to change the way finance works. And that ultimately relies on retail. 
Now, crypto's had this long journey of trying to find product fit. Really, what does it matter to the everyday person to be using ETH or a smart contract or any of these things? And we're still not there yet. So, you know, what really excited Spark the last bull run? I mean, there were a number of factors, but a key factor was there was lots of cool new projects with unique applications that people wanted to try. Many of them financial, many of them gaming, some things, other things. But without that excitement, it's just speculation. So without retail that's excited about product fit, it's not going to be much fun. And what is it that would sort of help bring them back in? What would it be that we need to see maybe some development or something that you can imagine that would help them come back into the market? FOMO, right? <laughs> FOMO is very important. <laughs> I, think, I think I'll point to two major categories. You know, one is NFTs, which I'm a skeptic of everything. I was a skeptic of Bitcoin from day one. Um, and so NFTs always kind of seem funny to me, but there is some attraction there. Maybe it's because I'm from the last generation, but I don't like collecting things I can't touch. It turns out a lot of younger people do. Uh, so there might be value in NFTs there, especially if they're tied to access. You can get into this club. You have these rights. That's an interesting thing. Um, and the same with gaming. You know, we've seen loot boxes in traditional gaming, you know, buying player cards for FIFA or, you know, V-Bucks for Fortnite. Bringing that onto the blockchain has interesting applications, but it has to be done right. And it has to be in a way consumers can use. This is the key problem with crypto. It's a pain to use. And no one's really cracked that UI problem yet. I think once that's solved, it gets much easier to be excited about it and retail will come back. Well, let's talk about that UI issue because I, I, I'm interested, you know, how you approach um, this fragmented all over the world crypto industry. I mean, I, I don't even know what the latest count is. What is it like 10, 15,000 different coins going around? You know, so does a, a firm like yours, do you just focus on the, the majors or are you dabbling out into the DeFi world? You know, how do you de decide what to trade? Yeah, you know, our bread and butter as a high frequency trading firm is high volume. So obviously the highest volumes are immediately going to be BTC and ETH. Now, what's the flavor of the week is a question we're always asking because coin XYZ might be having all kinds of volume for reasons that we don't really care about. We're an HFT shop, but it's very much data in, data out. I've seen volume spike over there. I see numbers on my back test that are promising. I'm going to go trade that. I don't really care what it is. So that's really what we succeed at. We look for high volume spikes in activity and go trade there as fast as we can. Um, that being said, sometimes there are opportunities in DeFi. Sometimes there's interesting signals coming from that part of the world, but it's not Dexterity's uh, kind of center of excellence. Can you talk a little bit more about what specifically you guys do? Because you and I have talked in the past about market neutral strategies, which we mentioned earlier in the show. So lay out for us, what is that? What you guys are doing? What you're utilizing? What, what a market neutral strategy really is? And then also tell us how you guys are holding up this year and how market neutral strategies are holding up this year. Yeah, I mean, at a high like kind of finance 101 level, a market neutral strategy is one where you're indifferent to the price direction of the assets you're trading. So Dexterity doesn't care if Bitcoin goes up or down in terms of its PL. What we care about is volatility and activity and pricing and efficiencies. That's what we really look for. And that's what makes us market neutral. And there's kind of a few flavors of strategies that work like this. You've heard of the basis trade, maybe. Maybe you've heard of statistical arbitrage strategies or market making strategies. These are all strategies that generate alpha, but at the same time, the price of the underlying doesn't really matter to you whether it goes up or down. 
And the good thing about market neutral is that whether it's rain or shine, you're doing okay. You're printing money and things are going the right way. You have a very high, sharp strategy. Um, the downside is when there's a bull run, like there was in 2020 to, up till the beginning of this year, um, you're not getting those outsized asymmetric gains of somebody who just goes levered long. The good news is when Celsius falls down and so does Bitcoin's price, you don't get hurt either. So that's our goal is to kind of be uh, be ready for any market. Can you maybe give us an example of a strategy or a trade you have utilized recently and Talk a little bit more specifically about what returns actually look like. If somebody is running a good market neutral strategy this year, what do those returns look like? Because obviously within crypto, everything else has been just suffering so much. Yeah, I think, you know, the example I use for a, a typical stat art strategy is one in equities. Let's say you buy some uh, Coca-Cola stock and you see your Coca-Cola stock pops 10%, but Pepsi doesn't. Now, they're not the same thing, Coke and Pepsi, but whatever is good for Coke is probably good for Pepsi. So maybe you sell all your Coke, you spend that the proceeds to buy some Pepsi and you wait. And if things go right, it also goes up 10%. And now you've kind of made this stat art strategy where you've traded two things that aren't fungible, but it was a good signal that you're going to make money. It's a bit more sophisticated than that simple example in the real world. And in crypto, you have a lot of different products that are margined in different assets. So the price of Bitcoin in USD Tether is going to be different than the price of Bitcoin in USD. They're not fungible. They're not the same product, but they're highly correlated. So there might be opportunities there. Um, so that's a very simple example of a startup strategy that makes sense. Um, in terms of returns, one of the problems of being a prop shop is very defensive of what our returns are. Um, but I can tell you that if you're doing north of 20%, you're probably doing it right, but you can get better than that. Wow, <clears throat> north of 20%. I'll take that in this market for sure. That, that's <laughs> in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Yeah, Mike, I'm curious how you see uh, the market structure in crypto evolving. You know, it's, it strikes me as it's probably a tough time to be an exchange or tougher than it was. Volumes are low. Prices are low. We, as you said, you're, you're losing that retail uh, interest. Um, it, are, are we due for sort of a replay of what we saw in the equities market where there was a lot of consolidation uh, of exchanges and a lot of sort of efforts to... Uh, figure out ways to bring in more uh, revenue for exchanges, either by selling data or, you know, selling co-location services, that sort of thing. Obviously, as you said, you can't really co-locate in the cloud, but 
you know, walk us through how you see the sort of the market structure and the big players evolving from here, given this this sort of lackluster year we've had had in crypto. Um, are the boom times over? You know, is it is it sort of a, a, a time for belt tightening among uh, the major players? And, and we could see, you know, uh, a different crypto market structure at the other end of this. You know, I think there's two major camps in amongst the crypto exchanges right now. And keep in mind, crypto emerged from a type of rebellion. There was a lack of trust in institutions. Uh, people want to have didn't trust banks. They want to control their own assets. And so a lot of the guys who founded the big exchanges have that kind of mavericky uh, kind of ideology. Um, and, you know, for Dexterity, the reason we started in crypto was because the barriers to entry were much lower. I didn't have to pay a million dollars a month in data from 12 exchanges to get it going. I didn't have to pay for co-location. I didn't have to buy a microwave tower, right? And I think some founders of crypto exchanges love that. That's what they want to see is a level playing field where you can't buy your way in. You have to be smarter. And there's other exchanges that are saying the TradFi market, the TradFi model makes sense. And that's exactly where we should go. So I think some exchanges dogmatically will say, no, we don't want to sell data. No, we don't want to sell colo. That's not the world we want the future to be. And there are others that will say, yeah, this makes perfect sense. And I want to kind of eliminate all the small guys and have five major counterparties who are, you know, the brand name HFTs and institutional traders in the world. Um, and that's what life should look like. It's hard to say who's going to win. The pessimist in me says the TradFi guys. Uh, but as someone who came as an outsider into crypto and into finance, I really hope it's the guys who are more altruistic and want to see a different financial world going forward. Can you talk a, a bit more about the state of play for exchanges right now? Because if we have people trading less, if if volumes are much lower, what does that mean? What does it mean for exchanges? And can they still continue to make money in this environment if fewer people are trading? You know, I think one of the interesting thing about crypto exchanges is you know exactly how much money they're making because their fees are public and their volumes are public. And it's not a black box. Um, they are the exchange and broker combined. So at a minimum, you know what their basic exchange fees are. And then they have lots of other things going on the side, OTC, EDC, what have you. Um, the kind of big leading exchanges, they're still doing great. I'm not really worried about them. It's as you go into those tier two and tier three exchanges, you have to wonder what's going to happen. Um, now for them, exit kind of can make sense, but only if it's the right kind of exit. Now for a big exchange, you know, flow comes organically. It's very easy for me to trade from exchange A, could drop exchange A and start trading on exchange B. So there's no point in buying exchange B necessarily, unless they have a unique geographical positioning where they've got a user base that the big exchanges don't have. So I do expect big exchanges to purchase small exchanges that have geographic strength um, and also exchanges that have licenses. And we've seen FTX and Coinbase both do this. Coinbase, for example, buying FairX so they could get that futures license in the US. Um, that's where I see consolidation making sense. Um, and in terms of revenue, yeah, they're, they're going to have to get creative. And does it mean buying data? Maybe. Um, but today, looking at their exchange fees, I think the big guys are fine. You know, Michael, it's funny when Vildana uh, booked you for this podcast a few weeks ago, I think the last thing I ever imagined we'd discuss would be Kim Kardashian. But uh, it, it, here we are, you know, uh, SEC dropping a bombshell this week, finding uh, Kim Kardashian for her uh, being a crypto influencer on social media without uh, disclosing she was being paid. But I look at that action and I really have to scratch my head because here, you know, Gary Gensler of the SEC is coming out and basically saying there's these tens of thousands of tokens we consider securities. Um 
And if you read between the lines, the unspoken part is, well, we're going to let all these, un, you know, unregistered securities be, but we're going to go after the Kim Kardashians of the world for shilling them on social media, which, uh, you know, makes me wonder about, you know, is there a message from the regulation standpoint of something like that, that, look, these things are here to stay, whether or not they are registered securities or not, um, the, the sort of horses out of the barn and, and the regulators are trying now to just uh, deal with the, the market as it is rather than blow it up or, or, you know, make it start from scratch. But for a guy like you, I wonder how much does it matter regulation? I mean, is it is it a major risk to you or is it the type of thing like, you know, you'll you'll keep dancing while the music's playing. And if they you know, if the crackdown comes, you'll 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 figure out a, a second career choice. You know, how, how are you thinking about <laughs> it all? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm an ex-lawyer, actually, believe it or not. But don't worry, I'm much better now. And <laughs> the way, you know, the way regulators have to work with crypto, it's so hard. I do not envy them because you've got this borderless asset that's taken off while the world was on fire. There were so many things happening in the world and you've had COVID and, and wars. And how do you actually worry about regulating crypto of all things? And it snuck up on them and it got big. So now they've got this borderless thing and how they control it. So you're right. The opinions and the actual letters we've seen, they're kind of they're kind of hard to read because they don't dictate general rules. They indicate them. But I do feel this kind of a, a, a difficulty in how do you make rules for something that's so borderless and that's just going to jurisdiction hop as need be. Um, now, do I worry about that a lot? Of course I do, because we need to trade these things. The good news is the big exchanges out there are also very worried about this and they're getting proactive. Um, you know, if you asked me three years ago, it was Wild West, and I won't mention any names by name, but you know them. They were definitely taking some chances with the regulators. And now they're trying to rectify their ways and get into a position where their offering is compliant with the relevant jurisdictions they participate in. And so, you know, my hope is that we're going to get there in time and the regulators won't really knock anybody out. And I think that's what they're doing. Um, people are cooperating with regulators now and they're trying to find a framework that works because everyone knows. This isn't going away anymore. Crypto's here to stay. Whether it's a trillion dollar asset class or not, it's pretty darn sticky. Um, so that's my expectation is they're going to have to kind of struggle to give kind of really clear opinions, but they'll get there eventually working with the relevant parties. But what does regulation actually look like? Because I've been covering crypto for the last four and a half years. I feel like at least once a week, somebody tells me that regulation is coming, regulators are going to crack down, and that actually it's going to be good for the crypto space. But it's, I feel like a very squishy subject. So what does regulating the crypto markets actually look like? Yeah, and I think, I think the problem is that in regulation, you have existing frameworks for TradFi. And the traditional thing you want to do is just apply that to crypto. And it's clear it doesn't work. And we saw this in the early internet days when you talked about regulating media and you just couldn't do it the same way because internet was borderless. So it's not clear to me what the end state is. And I don't know if it means loosening of certain restrictions in the traditional world or tightening in crypto. I think it really could go either way. Um, but it's really hard to say. If it was a problem I could solve, I would go do it and hopefully make a lot of money doing it. Um, but it's a hard one. <laughs> How did uh, was the the Ethereum merge a a good trading opportunity for you guys? You know, being high frequency traders, what we worry about is edge cases, and the merge is an edge case in that what's going to happen is trading activity going to go through the roof? Are exchanges going to explode? You know, what could go wrong? And we didn't know. 
and we're conservative, so we played it safe. And we watched our machines like hawks, um, and we just kind of navigated it in a very safe way. That being said, there were definitely others who were making use of this moment to kind of find ways to generate alpha. And I think that the big trade everyone was doing, and it appeared in the funding rates on perpetual swaps of Ether, was simply buying spot Ether, going short on the perpetual, and then collecting that fork. Because when the merge went through, if you were holding any ETH, you also got ETHW or proof of work ETH. So now you have two coins, the second one kind of for free, and then you go dump that as soon as you can. And there was a race among exchanges to see who could list it first and open up deposits and withdrawals because they wanted to get the fees off of all that dumping. I mean, that's exactly what we saw. We didn't partake, but it was, you know, it's a fun trade to run if that's your kind of thing. Yeah. So I get the impression you are mainly trying to profit off of price appreciation or depreciation going long or short, not getting involved in the yield farming, uh, you know, the the Terra dollar and, and Celsius's of the world. Is that is that a safe assumption? And and how do you you know, how did how does yield farming and that whole end of the industry fit into your your strategies, if it does at all? Yeah, you know, it's not something we do much of. Um, and there's there's kind of a reason. Now, now they can be very profitable. A lot of people have been very successful doing it. But the thing about, and this almost, almost comes down to dogma, about dexterity is that we're just a bunch of nerds. And we really like hard problems. And so HFT is a super hard problem. You bang your head against the wall for three months until you have that eureka moment and you're rushed with dopamine. And that's what I'm looking for. And that's what my team's looking for. Yield farming is cool. Um, but it doesn't have the same kind of characteristics of that difficult problem solving, at least for us. So it's not something we do. I think one thing in DeFi that would be interesting to do that we don't do is MEV or minor extraction value, which has to do with optimizing your trades on chain, in particular on the Ethereum chain, to kind of make alpha based on the fact you can see what's coming. Because if someone submits an order on chain, you've got a good 15 seconds to react to it before it actually gets actioned. And you can try to run, kind of front run it in a very legal and compliant way because it's all public. It's not proprietary information. So MEV is cool. Lots of interesting problems there. It's like playing poker with your cards up and still trying to win. <laughs> um, but we don't do that now, sadly. We just don't have the bandwidth. And Michael, just to to go back to markets again, I'm, I'm wondering how you guys think about the crypto winter and how long that might actually last. Because I read a lot of notes about what's going on in crypto markets. One of the themes that people have been focusing on recently is that long-term holders really have just been sitting on their holdings and their coins really aren't moving all that much. And so the thought there is that maybe they're just waiting waiting out and waiting for things to get a little bit worse before they actually start to get better. So how are you thinking about the crypto winter, winter and how long it might potentially drag out for? Yeah, one of the benefits of being market neutral is I don't have to worry about that a lot. Whether it's six months or two years or even longer, we're still going to be okay. But I do think about it because it's a lot more fun when there's a lot of activity and when people are excited about it. And we're discovering what crypto is actually for in the world. Um, so, you know, it's something that I wish I could tell you how long it's going to be last. I don't know. But I think a lot of hodlers have said, I've seen this before. This has been happening for 10 years. We've been through cycles and each dip is bigger than the prior and each wave forward is bigger than the prior. And I know a lot of people who are betting on that. Um, there are some who think this is the last one because we've got to a point where the maturity of the market is so great and the institutional participation has ramped up that 
after the next bull run, there might not be another one as it kind of falls in line with traditional finance. But it remains to be seen. You know, Michael, it's, it's fascinating. You know, we talked about sort of this range bound uh, market in the major cryptos. Uh, traditional FX markets, though, have been anything but range bound this year. You know, we've got this unrelenting dollar strength, uh, weak pound. Uh, I'm sorry to bring that up. I know that's probably a sore subject for a guy <laughs> guy based in London. Uh, the euro. I mean, does that influence does this volatility in the tradfi traditional uh, FX market? You know, is there an opportunity there for you? You know, are you trading stable coins against one one another that type of thing? Yeah, and it's, it's an interesting thing because crypto can be margined in anything. So there's certainly pairs that are margin in GBP and pairs margin in dollars and margin in stable coins. So there definitely are opportunities there. It was moving so fast and so furious. And it's really an area that hasn't been explored in the past because FX was relatively stable for the major pairs for a long time. Um, so there definitely were opportunities there. Um, but as you said, I'm a Londoner. I want things to get back to normal. <laughs> so, so my hope is things stabilize and we'll just trade crypto. <laughs> From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. And Michael, I think early in the show, you mentioned the the basis trade, which was a really popular trade with institutions a couple of years ago. So I'm um, just taking this opportunity while I have you here to very selfishly ask you, what are some of the quirky things that are happening in crypto markets right now? Maybe something that's going on a trade or something that we should all be paying attention to. Yeah, if I could, if I could butt in, you know, the non-nerds among us might not know exactly what the basis trade is. I, of course, know exactly what it is, but maybe some of our listeners, maybe start off explaining what that is, Michael. Sure. When you've got a future product and the underlying spot product, so let's say you've got a BTC spot and you've got a BTC future, they'll converge upon the delivery date of that future. So by going short on one and long on the other, based on where the prices are, you know the price is going to converge. So you've locked in your profit the day you actually make the trade. But then you have to wait for the convergence to happen whenever that future contract is going to settle. You close all your positions and you've made your money and you're happy. So that's what the basis trade is. And if you look back in Q1 of 2020, crypto basis trades were just all the rage because the numbers were well out of whack. Things were so frothy. 
And the futures price of crypto, I mean, it's it's difficult to make sense of it. You know, the futures price of a barrel of oil makes sense because it costs money to keep oil someplace for a quarter before you deliver it. There's a cost to carry. Crypto, there's no cost to carry. So the futures price is always kind of an interesting thing to look at. What does that yield curve look like? Um, so that trade was kind of uh, big then, but really in mid-2020, it kind of settled down. Yeah. There's still people running it, but it's not the biggest yields out there these days. Yeah. But to get to Valdana's point, is there anything sort of new and exciting that to replace that? You know, there's some opportunities I'll talk about that we're not doing. Um, but one of the side effects of the crypto kind of uh, downturn is that there were lots of DAOs that were sitting on treasuries that are kind of in distress. Um, and it's almost like a distressed asset market where if you can persuade enough voters in a DAO, and just to back up, a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. If you own Subcoin, you can vote on propositions that dictate how the DAO behaves. So a lot of these DAOs are distressed and the prices of these DAOs are beneath the treasury value. And so the game then is, hey, can I convince the rest of the DAO to liquidate the treasury and then pay it out? And if I do that, the liquidation value is going to be greater than the price I'm paying of the token. And that's because crypto prices are sometimes irrational and sometimes they don't trust the people running the DAO. So that's an interesting trade we've seen happen a few times over the course of the past few months. So one of the things that I've been writing about recently are the different narratives that are in the crypto space. So, for example, one of the narratives is that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. Another is that it's a store of value, etc. So you hear you hear about these narratives quite a bit. But really, the, the narratives have quieted down this year as prices have been crashing. So what is what do you think is the narrative right now? If I go on Twitter, for example, I see a lot of tweets that say one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, which is which has just become this uh, sort of crypto meme. So is that one of the narratives? What are what are the things that are people talking about or latching on to while we're having this very bad year for prices? You know, it's hard. I think a lot of us are waiting for a good narrative because narratives are what drive bull markets. And I can't say there's a great narrative right now. I think one thing to consider, though, is that with institutions coming in in size, with HFT players coming in, um, they're learning a lot about what this beast crypto is and how it's fundamentally different and how this technology, whether it's in crypto or in other kind of places, even TradFi, it's probably the future. Um, and so for them, they are kind of learning how do we how do we like tackle this? And so if you're an HFT shop from TradFi, you have great latencies. You know how to work a fixed connection, which is the standard connection among exchanges in TradFi. Crypto's weird. You have really unique connections to every exchange and everyone is different. And you win by finding nuances in the integrations, the APIs with each exchange. So that's something Dexterity is really good at. Um, you know, we're not going to have the same tick to trade as Citadel. They're going to beat us there. But in terms of connectivity, we spent five years building it and figuring it out. So I think, you know, I can't say a narrative that's going to drive Bitcoin. I think in amongst institutions, there is a narrative of how do they figure out this new asset class and how do they solve problems that they haven't solved before? Mike, typically we use crypto examples and the craziest things we saw in markets. So I'm so happy we were able to devote this entire episode to talking about some of the things that are going on on there. And Michael, I hope you came prepared with something. I'll let you go first with whatever it is that was the craziest thing that you saw in markets this week? Okay, brilliant. Uh, well, as you know, I only read and only watch Bloomberg. That's every right. Now and then something, of course, because I'm, I'm a good citizen. <laughs> um, 
But now and again, something just crossed my desk from the publication. And this one had to do with Chipotle, which was doing a proof of stake, uh, a meat, <laughs> not the, not the position. And so um, they, uh, they were running a promotion and they were saying, we'll give you 99.5% off because that's how much you power you save by not using proof of work and instead using proof of stake. They'll give you that off a stake bowl um, if you use a tool, I think it was called Flexa, to pay with your ETH. And so this journalist had gone to try to do that and gets to Chipotle and they've got no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> and, and he says, well, here's the tweet. Look at my tweet. And they're like, okay, well, there's a QR code in your app. Let's scan that. And then an error shows up in the terminal. <laughs> and they're like, you know what, man, just, just take it and leave. You don't have to pay. It's fine. <laughs> and so it was, it was a hundred percent off. So he did really well. Um, but it highlights the, really the problem with crypto. It's, it's not there yet in terms of being super usable by the everyday person. And that's where we got to get to. That's pretty good. Proof, proof of stake. That now a Chinese place, <laughs> uh, Chinese takeout has to have proof of walk then. <laughs> but up, up. It's a step counter app. Yeah. yeah. It's called a uh, sweat point. You can use that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good one, Michael. Yeah. You came prepared. I like that. Okay, for my craziest thing, it's actually not at all markets related, but I'm giving myself a pass because I'm hosting the show. So there's a farmer in upstate New York near Buffalo, and he had set out to grow the heaviest pumpkin in all of New York State. And he actually ended up with a national championship winning pumpkin. His giant pumpkin clocked in at 2,554 pounds, which is above the previous record of 2,528 pounds. And what the farmers had to do to keep it growing, which is so interesting to me, is they gave it fertilizer and kelp and worm casings, whatever that is, and chicken refuse, which sounds disgusting, and tons of water. And there was a really great quote in the article for about this pumpkin. I think it was maybe in The Guardian or something, but it said, the farmer said, all the animals and critters seem to love this pumpkin more than anything in the world. They all want to eat on it. And I have some cats and try, that come and try to scratch it. They think it's a big couch. So this was my favorite story that I saw this week and just wanted to use the opportunity to talk about it. That's hilarious. <laughs> 2,000 2, plus pounds of a pumpkin. Well, it, it makes me think of, uh, I went to uh, college in in the state of Delaware. I went to the finest university in the state of Delaware, I will, I will tell you. And uh, in Delaware, what they do after uh, Halloween every year is they have something called pumpkin chunking, which is where you build a catapult and you load on your pumpkins. And the, the goal is to see who can uh, chuck their pumpkin the furthest from the catapult. So I feel like if you could do that with this pump, you could like take out the Russian <laughs> army with this thing. If if you had it. <laughs> All right. Pretty good. Stiff competition this week. I think I, uh, I don't know. I might have to, I might have to give it to proof of stake. I think that's my favorite of, of the week. I'll concede defeat. Well, rare, rare time when I'm actually defeated. R very oh, wow. rare, Michael. I'll concede defeat. Uh, but I'll give you mine. Uh, mine is uh, themed appropriately for you two. They're both British related. Uh, both have a little London connection, and one includes a very nerdy book for you, Voldana. So two things going up for auction. One is uh, David Bowie's space suit um, from the 1980 video for Ashes to Ashes is up for auction uh, from Prop Store Auctions later in the year. This is a story courtesy of the Daily Mail. So that's one item going up for auction. 
The other item is a Jane Austen book, uh, unique first edition of Emma. Now that, and this story is courtesy of the Telegraph. So one item is yet to go up for auction. So we only have the estimated price for that. But we do know that the Jane Austen book did sell, by the way, bought by an American who insisted that it stay in England. So it's going to a museum. Uh, a very nice uh, gesture there from some rich American. But Michael, I regret to inform you, you're now a contestant on a game show we call The Price is Precise. And so <laughs> I need you to guess. Not The Price is Right. We're playing The Price is Precise. Not The Price is Right. Yes, yes. Any lawyers out there for Bob Barker who are listening, this is completely different. So I need you to guess which one is a higher value and, and give me give me a pound figure for that value. Valdana, as tradition, you start. Is it David Bowie's spacesuit from the video for Ashes to Ashes in 1980? Or is it that first unique first edition of Emma? by Jane Austen, uh, I will say uh, includes a handwritten from the author message inside. It's it's definitely the spacesuit. I'm going with 75,000 pounds. 75,000 British pounds. Michael, uh, let's see how your valuation skills are. What, what do you think? Which one's higher? And what's your your dollar, your pound figure on a, on it? Now you got to find out why we're market neutral. It's like I can never guess the prices of things, but we'll give it a shot. And honestly, Vildana, you just betrayed your book club. So I'm really ashamed of you. But anyway, I uninvite you from, from my book clubs. You're, you're not invited. You're no longer invited from, to my book clubs. Fine. Well, you're not invited to my Bowie, David Bowie club. No, I'm kidding. You're invited. You're invited. I'll clock at, at 133,000 pounds. Cause that's what I would pay for it. Okay. It's a tough one to referee because the Jane Austen book wins 375,000 pounds for the Jane Austen book. Bowie's space suit has not yet gone off for auction, so it could go higher, but they only expect it to fetch 81,000 pounds. I think the bottom line is you both lose and I win. I don't know. That's the only that's the only fair resolution I can come up with. I'm sorry. I thought you were letting Michael win this week. Well, he he wins the craziest thing uh, award. I win the I win the prices. I see prices per sight because, as we know, I have to win something. I have to stroke my eagle ego somehow, somehow in this. I let you do the introduction, and you did very well, Valdana. Congratulations. I think that's about all the time we have, though. Uh, join us for our book club next week. Uh, Michael Safai, uh, great to catch up with you and, and hear all about HFT uh, trading in crypto. Fascinating stuff. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. We were so happy to have you on the show. All right. Thanks a lot. Great to speak with you both. That's it for the show this week. Don't forget to tune into Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast. You can find it on the terminal or wherever you download your podcasts. What Goes Up will be back next week. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow Mike Regan at at Reganonymous. I'm at at Vildana Hyrick. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.